The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ to everybody here this morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for those of you who are in the room, welcome. And those of you who are tuning in online, welcome to you as well. And of course, we always want to tell our visitors, thanks so much for being here. We're always really glad to have visitors here with us this morning. We're just honored that you've chosen to worship with us. So thank you so much for joining us. And a little reminder, uh, if you are a family with young children with littles, we've got a lunch for you up in the gym right after service this morning. So even if you're visiting this morning, if you're a family with with some young kids, come on up and spend some time with us. We'd love for you to come hang out at a free meal. So it's great to be with you all this morning, and I'm excited to jump right in to week two of our new sermon series this morning, Your Story, Scripture, and the Mission of God. We find when we come together to celebrate and remember the story of God in the Bible, the story of God's mission, we find that it is not only the story of God's mission, but it's our story, and that means it's your story as well. So let's jump into that next part of the story in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. We come before you in the grace of this gathering, in the grace of being your people called together and gathered gathered by your salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for peace on earth. God, we pray for peace in our hearts. We pray for peace in our church, our community, and our world. Jesus, we ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text and to teach us how to live in your victorious gospel. I ask you for the gift of preaching, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2016, about 100 yards from the Kremlin in Moscow, President Vladimir Putin unveiled a statue to Vladimir the Great. Vladimir the Great is this statue. It's about 60 feet high, and it's a statue of a man who ruled. He was called the Prince of Kiev, and he ruled in Kievan Rus about 1,000 years ago. The statue was unveiled in 2016, and when it was unveiled, the Russian television touted it as the first monument to Vladimir the Great, seemingly ignoring the one that was already standing in the city of Kiev in Ukraine. And it was interesting that it was unveiled in 2016 because this was a man who was associated with Crimea. That's where Vladimir the Great was baptized. And so he's become a kind of embodiment of that area. And it made it somewhat conspicuous that the statue was unveiled two years after Russia had annexed Crimea in Ukraine. You see, the statue was unveiled in 2016 And many folks, most of all, thought that this statue to Vladimir the Great was something of a thinly veiled monument to the current leader of Russia at the time who shares that first name. It seemed as if it was a monument in order to consolidate territory and history and power, an icon to Putin himself. Last week in Genesis chapter one, we got to see God create the world. God creates from nothing. He creates out of self-giving love and he places at the center of his creation his image in humankind. He places there his icon. But what happens when humankind ceases to live as an icon of God and instead seeks to live as icons unto themselves. What happens when humankind ceases to live according to the image of God and instead seeks to set up its own image, to live as if it is God, as if they are like God, in order to consolidate their own power, plans, and desires? In Genesis 3 this morning, we move to a new point in the plot line of God's story. In Genesis 3, we move to a tragic moment in the story of God's mission, the moment when human beings, God's icon, God's image is cracked. 
is broken. When humans seek to live as images unto themselves. So let's jump into this major turning point together back in Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? So we should start by saying a couple things about the serpent in Genesis 3. The first thing to notice is we're not exactly sure how this serpent got here. Right? Genesis doesn't tell us much more than it seems to be one of the creatures that God has made, but we're not exactly sure why this serpent is here, why it's acting the way it is, why it already seems to be in rebellion to God's good creation, using its cunning to deceive. And the other thing we should say about the serpent is that Bible scholars like to point out that Genesis 3 doesn't actually identify the serpent with Satan the way that we're accustomed to in that text specifically. And I think that's a good thing to note. It's good to try and take texts on their own terms and see new insights from that. But we also have to realize that we are the church And we don't approach Genesis as a lone soul book by itself. We approach it as one among a library of books that we call the Bible. And indeed, the rest of the Bible, and in fact, the end of the Bible, has something to say about this very beginning. In fact, the book of Revelation in 12, chapter 12, verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. We spent some time in Revelation not too long ago. Remember that word that means revelation is apocalypse. And apocalypse means to reveal, to unveil. And one of the things that it seems that revelation unveils or unmasks is the actual identity of the serpent. That somehow in the garden, somehow in the origins here of God's human community, there is a malevolent power already at work. It's not something God created. It's not something that God has brought out of nothing, but somehow that power, that spiritual power, seems to be rebelling, and that spiritual power is what we call Satan. What do we know about Satan? What have we said about Satan in the past? Well, you might have heard me talk about that word, Satan, that Hebrew word, By about the New Testament time, that word is kind of becoming a proper noun in some ways, but it never loses its original meaning, which is accuser. The Satan, the Satan, is the accuser, right? Satan is this will to accuse, this power of accusation and negation and controverting God's good creation that he has brought into being. Satan seeks to be this parasite, this disease that feeds on God's good being and existence that he has brought into existence in the world. And Satan tries to negate the good things of God. So already in Genesis 3, there's this malevolent power at work in the garden. There's this power of evil, of negation, of accusation 
right? Working against the good things of God. Already, sin is kind of on the scene, right? Even as humans show up, sin is sort of just in the air, embodied in this serpent. So what does the serpent say? What does Satan say this morning? He says to Eve, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? We can already see that the serpent is kind of trying to willfully pervert the words of God because that's precisely what God didn't say. God actually said in chapter two that you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. So God gives freedom for all trees but this one, and yet the way that Satan frames the question, he, he's trying to, to confuse, right? He's trying to twist, to negate. He's the father of lies. And so in verse two, the woman responds to the serpent. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Commentators like to note that the woman does something interesting here in her response to the serpent. She includes words that God didn't actually say. Right? God said, don't eat of that tree. But then the woman includes this little phrase of, and neither shall we touch it. Right? People kind of wonder, what's going on here? Are Adam and Eve kind of playing lawgiver themselves? Are they sort of setting up this rabbinic fence around the law itself, a law to protect the law? Regardless, it seems like Eve is kind of on her back foot, that Satan, the serpent, has injected this confusion, right? He's injected this deception, and she's been unsettled by this questioning in her midst. But then the serpent responds, The serpent says flatly, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here he he directly challenges the character and authority of God. And Satan lies, but he lies with a kind of half-truth. Right? There, there's a ring of truth to what Satan says. And here he's, he's playing on the equivocal nature of death. He's playing on the idea that death can mean multiple things. No, Adam and Eve will not drop dead the very moment that they eat this fruit. Their physical life may persist. But a real death is happening. A real Spiritual death is happening. It's the death of an abundant, flourishing life for humanity with God. It's the death of life and godliness. This is the kind of death that's coming in to the human world. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is a major moment in the story of Scripture. A major tragic plot point, a turning point in the narrative. It's the point when humankind, who has been created as the icon, the image of God, to, to bear that image into the world, the icon is cracked. The icon is broken as the humans are deceived by the serpent and they begin to serve their own desires, to serve and consolidate their own kingdom and purposes, right? Because Satan said, you will be like God and humans seek to become God rather than to live into his image. Now, sin is also not explicitly in this chapter. The word sin is going to enter the story in chapter 4, but sin is one of the lenses that the rest of the Bible reads Genesis 3 through. And I think we should take that seriously. Again, in Hosea chapter 6, it says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They, they broke the covenant. Right? That's Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. And then the Apostle Paul will famously write in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. The covenant is broken. Death is is spreading, the image is cracked. In other words, we've come to the Christian doctrine of sin. We've come to the Christian teaching about sin. And you may have heard me allude before to G.K. Chesterton, who sort of famously says that the Christian doctrine of sin is perhaps the only Christian teaching that can actually be empirically verified. In other words, if you want to know that Christians are telling the truth about the world and its sinful, broken estate, look around. Look around you. Look across the street. Look across an ocean. Get on social media. Probably most importantly, look inside. Our hearts are curved in on themselves as Luther says. And yet, it's a perpetual temptation for humankind to believe that we can just outgrow sin on our own. It's a perpetual temptation, especially since the Enlightenment several centuries ago, to believe that if we just have enough technology, if we just have enough science, if we just have enough reason and discussion, we can all get together and make this thing work. We can't. Many have tried. But 
that very belief that we can evolve past it ourselves is the kind of hubris that just helps us churn the quicksand even more quickly. And we sink into the mire of our state in sin. And we look across the ocean at the war and death going on, the carnage. And we see clearly that this world is not as it should be. This good world that God has created has been broken. And as one uh, op-ed columnist said the day after the invasion of Ukraine began, you know, this is kind of a 20th century moment, only here we are in the 21st century. You know, it feels like something from the past century. And even in the past century, at the beginning, we thought we could get beyond human history. We thought we could finally reach that kind of utopia, and yet the 20th century was the bloodiest one so far. The 20th century was perhaps the most destructive and deadly in the history of the world. And here we are repeating those kinds of behaviors that lead to that. We are mired in a state of sin. And that all sounds pretty depressing. This is not the most chipper chapter in the Bible. It's probably one of the sadder ones. But there is hope to be taken away. And there is something important to get from the Christian teaching about sin. And I think the way we could say that is that acknowledging human sin leads to human solidarity before God. All right, because we all share in this kind of environmental congenital condition of sin, none of us has right to morally assert ourselves over anyone else. Right? None of us really has a leg to stand on before God. We all stand in this equal place as sinners in need of a Savior. We're all equally in need of God's grace. That's not to say all of our actions are all equated with in each other's. But we have the same state of need for the grace and salvation of God. And so that should engender compassion, right? That should engender solidarity amongst us as we stand before the mercy of God. That should remind us of that quote that you've heard time and time again of people that you encounter, everyone you encounter is going through some kind of battle even if you can't see it. Well, yeah, they may be going through many battles and specifically the battle with the powers of sin, death, and the devil, We're all going through that. And so acknowledging that should create this kind of human solidarity in our place of fallen, broken need for God's grace. So we can't hate each other. Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the man who despises another will never be able to make anything of him. Nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. Acknowledging human sin leads to human solidarity before God. And when we enter the world, 
sin is just kind of already there to greet us. Right? Remember, the serpent is, is already in the garden, already working this deception and confusion, already seeking to kind of negate or contradict God's good creation. And we're not sure exactly how the serpent got there. We, we can't fully come to terms with the origin of evil because evil is irrational. It's absurd. We can't fully explain it this side of eternity, as Fleming Rutledge puts it beautifully. She says, there has never been a satisfactory account of the origin of evil, and there will be none on this side of the consummation of the kingdom of God. Evil is a vast excrescence, a monstrous contradiction that cannot be explained, but can only be denounced and resisted wherever it appears. The story of God's mission doesn't give us a detailed description of where the world went wrong with evil. It shows us where it enters the story for us in humankind. It doesn't give us an exact why or an exact how, but it gives us a what. It gives us what God is doing to resist evil. It gives us what we must be doing to resist evil. And it gives us what our hope must be in because it tells us who our hope is in, in God. At the end of our text in verses 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, the serpent will strike Eve's offspring and Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will deliver a mortal blow, will deliver a flesh wound, but Eve's offspring will deliver a lethal, mortal, final blow. As Paul says in Romans chapter 16, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The great dragon is going to be thrown down. The ancient serpent will be crushed and it will be crushed through an offspring of the woman, but not just any offspring. While Satan begins his work by deceiving Eve, Satan's work will be done through the offspring of Mary. And we may feel that serpent wrapped around our leg. We may feel sin crouching at our door, but we know that Jesus Christ coming through Mary is going to crush Satan under our feet. We know that Jesus Christ has planted his cross on the serpent's head. Jesus Christ has rolled the stone across the serpent's body and the son of God has come to destroy the works of the devil in the world. Praise God for his victory. Let us stand and praise Jesus Christ who defeats Satan forever.